0: Hi, I'm Jack Berazzini, and you're listening to the Secrets of Movies and TV Shows, and tonight we'll be discussing the hidden layers and deeper meanings in Denis Villeneuve's new hit film, Dune Part 2. And joining me on the panel today are Jeff Hacker. Hey, Jack. Hey, Jack. And Patrick Mason. Howdy, Jack. Hi, it is good to finally be here talking about this movie because I need someone to talk about it with. <laughs> my, my wife and I have, <laughs> have talked about it as much as we can, and my one coworker who is a big Dune fan has not been in the office lately, so I got to get this out of my system. <laughs> yeah, so this is the the follow-up to the 20, 2021. I keep wanting to say 2020, but COVID, threw a wrench in those works. The 2021 <laughs> Dune film, this covers the second part of Frank Herbert's novel. It picks up right where the original left off, and we get to follow Paul with the Fremen and his... Quest for justice against the Harkonnens and the Empire, and his waffling on whether or not he is actually the Lisa al Gaib. And as we see, he finally takes up that mantle to rather dark and devastating effects. Yeah. So, Jeff, what is your background with the Dune series? Have you just seen the movies or have you read any of the novels? And is, is yeah, what's your background in that?
1: Yeah. I've read all of the original Dune novels back in, it's probably been a 15 to 20 years somewhere in there that I've read the originals and I read the prequels that were out at the time and some of the later that were written by Brian Herbert and then some of the sequels and other things that have come out since I haven't read the most recent couple so I'm pretty deep on the Dune lore and also I'm a big fan of the 2000s and sci-fi channel miniseries Mm -hmm. and the and of like the Children of Dune miniseries, but I've rewatched the sci-fi one every couple of years. So yeah, I'm a big fan of Dune. Big fan of of these movies. So yeah, I've enjoyed the books. I reread the first novel, just finished it right before the, the second part of the movie because I wanted to be like fully locked in on to
2: spot the differences and stuff. So yeah, big fan of all the material.
0: What about you, Patrick? Yeah,
2: I read the original books in high school for the most part. I read uh, one, two, and three in high school, and then in college, four, five, and six. And what an interesting journey it takes you on <laughs> when you read yeah. 4, 5, and 6. It was one of those books, uh, amongst like the Star Wars books we read, that me and my my high school buddies would argue about till 2 or 3 a.m. on our local Denny's for Steak and Shake. And I really enjoyed it when the sci-fi did their 2000s series. That was awesome. I really loved it. I thought it was a great improvement of the 80s era movie, which... I had seen a couple times. I remember being exposed to it, like as a, like a younger kid, 10 years old or so, and not understanding what the heck was going on at all.
0: (laughs) And yeah, (laughs) to be fair, I don't think David Lynch knew what was going on at all. We've
2: got Sting and Patrick Stewart. Yeah. And Patrick Stewart. He was probably the highlight of that movie. I think even later when I watched it, I was like, yeah, but after that, the Brian Herbert started coming out with him and Kevin J. Anderson's books, and I, I started reading those. So I read the house books and then the sequel books. So Hunters and Sandworms. And I was, I read them because I wanted the story. Oh yeah. And the Butlerine Jihad. I read those because I wanted the plot. I wanted the story. I wanted like the parts that Herbert had put together for the world. But boy, did I not like the execution. I, it was a labor of love. <laughs> there was, a, there was some suffering through those books. And since then, my interaction with Dune, I, I, there's been some comics. There was a graphic novel they put out a couple years ago that was amazing of of at least the first part of the first book. And there's some board games out there that are a lot of fun to play where you get to play different houses and defeat your friends and betray them and fun stuff like that. So, And then when the movie was announced, I was just like, please let them do it right Please let them oh, yeah, do it right. I was like, let this be at least as good as the sci-fi miniseries.
0: <laughs> I think they definitely delivered on that. I was happy when I saw that Denis Villeneuve was the one who's going to be taking it over because he did so well with Blade Runner 2049. Yeah, I still
2: like the original uh Blade Runner. Like it's one of my favorite all-time movies of mm-hmm. all time, so it'd be hard to to beat it. But yeah, I think he captured the kind of essence of Blade Runner really well
0: in yeah. in the sequel movie. He did a good job. With yeah. That. He's got that he's got that eye and also the passion for the story. I think that this I've seen other people mention this but his version of Dune is analogous to what Peter Jackson did with Lord of the Rings like he he does a good job of in both parts, both part 1 and 2, he does a good job of taking the core ideas and then translating them to film and he doesn't keep everything from the books. There's a lot he has to trim out which just for time makes sense. But yeah, I think overall he captured the point of the story, which the two thousands miniseries keeps that idea that Paul is not just a hero who you need to unequivocally cheer for, which the nineteen eighty four movie completely misses the point on that. It just turns <laughs> Paul into a straight. Yeah, he <laughs> is the hero. Yeah. <laughs> And I, I was happy to see that they don't, they hint at that in the original, in the, in part one, they hint at that Paul is like, he's introduced as a good character, but you see the, the seeds of what's going to happen. And then in the sequel, they follow that completely through. He takes up the mantle of the, I guess you can call him a false messiah for the Fremen. And by the... He is
1: their messiah because he eventually turns the planet into green or well his I guess his descendants do turn the planet green but it all starts with Paul right
0: And it ends with him starting the jihad throughout the galaxy which I, I did notice in both movies they do not use the word jihad at all I think that's probably for probably cultural sensitivity and also it has it's always had like connotations for the crusades and that but Probably in a post 911 world, it might have been misconstrued. So I understand why they made that change. But uh. yeah,
1: and even beyond that, the Fremen are descended from Islamic, and it's like a combined Islam and Buddhist kind of culture. So that would, (laughs) if they called it a jihad and you draw that connection too, and that was more in the Brian Herbert stuff. So I don't know if Frank Herbert ever. Meant to do that in particular with connected to Islam or Buddhism,
0: yeah. If you called it a jihad now, it might not be received so well. I know in the original book, they he refers to them as being descended from the Zin Sunni, which is like a okay, yeah, of Zin Buddhism and I guess Sunni Islam. So, right, yeah, that's what it is. But so, so what I was what I would want to see, and I've not actually found anyone to talk to about this is I would want to know someone's opinion of this new movie going into it, having just seen the original movie and not having read the books. Cause I feel like you could watch the original movie and just follow through the coming of age hero's journey story. And then you get to the second movie and you end up with Paul he goes to the dark side. Basically. I would want to know someone's opinion of it who had not read the books if they would be blindsided by that. And also, it's nice to see that the movie's done so well, even though it is taking that tack.
1: Yeah, it would almost be like someone watching, starting their Star Wars journey with seeing episode one and not knowing who Darth Vader is. <laughs> and True. Then seeing Anakin's fall through through the course of the prequels. And then if you hadn't didn't know who he was from the sequels. So I don't know how someone would experience that because obviously I'm, I think we're all pretty deep right. in, the, in the lore. So but yeah, I've... It would be interesting to know if somebody like was like, Hey, Paul Atreides. And then at the end of it, they're like, Oh, yeah, no. <laughs> like what?
2: What's going on now?
1: I don't, yeah. And they do set it up in later stuff and then in the later novels that you, you may not have needed this and it attempted in the Brian Herberts. There's, there was like an interqual that took place between Dune and Dune Messiah. Where Paul goes on the, he goes on the crusade with undercover. So like his Fremen don't know it's him to see an experience. And he's, it's hinted that he like lost control of this. It's like that cult of personality where the cult takes over kind of the original idea. So it's, there's that aspect too that he, he lost control of what happened to. Yeah.
0: And they talk about that a lot in Dune Messiah. Like he, I think there's a scene where he and Stilgar. Are talking and he talks about like the ancient warlords of Earth and I think he mentions Hitler and Stalin and Genghis Khan and he talks about how they look like they're small potatoes compared to him because he's massacred sixty one billion people across the galaxy. But uh, yeah, so what did y'all think of the the changes they made from the book? I know there were a lot of them were I think just to trim down the story and make it more easy to translate to the screen. Like one of the biggest ones obviously is that Aaliyah is, she does not actually, she's not actually born in the the movie because in the book she's born and there's like a three, I think it's two three. years between Paul joining the Fremen and then the end of the story. And in the movie it's, I guess it's eight, eight ish, seven, eight months because Aaliyah is in utero for the whole movie. And I actually, I like how they did that because it is very difficult to have a two-year-old character who has who has the intelligence of an adult and have it not come across as just straight up weird or comical and they did that in the 1984 one and in the 2000s but i think they did that in an interesting way where all the interaction with Aaliyah is after jessica becomes the reverend mother and takes the water of life Aaliyah now has the depression she's the what do they call it like the Pre-born. Pre-born. She has the all the memories of the Reverend Mothers and she can communicate telepathically with Jessica. And I think that was I think that was probably the best way to do it. So what were y'all's thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I think and I think it also that change in others sets up a sequel a little bit better for making a yeah. film. Because if you're only going to have two and a half close to three hours to tell this huge story, I think setting up yeah, because Dune Messiah is, it's pretty complicated. Mm-hmm. Dune Messiah and Children of Dune. So I think making some of these changes works. And yeah, I would, from what I remember in the 2000s, one, I think Ollie is a little bit older in, at, by the end of it. So she's like maybe three or four instead of yeah. two. And I remember, I've only seen the, the 80s one, one, but I remember she was, I think they dubbed over like a maybe. kid and, and it was like really off putting, which I guess it's supposed to be because she's anathema. Like
2: She's called an abomination that's right. by, <laughs> yeah.
1: by the Bene Gesserit. One of those A-words. Yeah, no, but it was interesting. And we it was cool getting her in that vision of the future. So you do get Alia in there a little bit. And setting up, she could be the actress. I think it's Anya yeah. Taylor-Joy. Um Like you could do the third movie or the third book or whatever and, and have her, or I guess it would be probably the fourth. They'd probably combine a little bit like they did the miniseries. But she could be in there as a fully formed adult who's can do action and
2: do all that stuff. So,
0: yeah, I think Anya Taylor Joy is perfect casting for Alia. Yeah.
2: Yeah. She definitely seems to have. Because I thought the 2000s miniseries did an excellent job with casting her as well. And mm. that, like, beautiful but otherworldly, creepy <laughs> thing yeah. going on. And she pulled that off really well in the one scene we get to see her. It, that it's such a shortening of the time scale from the book. Because you're going from years that Paul spends in the South going around to the sieges and talking to the nabes and getting them on board. And in this, it's seven, eight months, right? Because by Mm. the end of it, she's still in utero, which is, I thought they did, it was great. It was a good decision. I thought they did it well. I really miss her killing the baron. Like (laughs) It's one of my favorite scenes from the (laughs) book. (laughs) But I thought it was an interesting shift, what they had to do with the religious forever aspect because from what I remember the books, and you guys can correct me, it wasn't that way. It, it very much seemed like there was a, a large, very almost frenzied sort of religious activity, especially among the older Fremen, Stilgar's generation, especially the southern Fremen, like the fanatics, right, they were calling them. And you have this break between them and the younger Fremen who are less religious and, and don't really believe in the on Ghib and I don't remember there being that much of a religious friction and that there's not right. It was like Paul and Jessica realize, okay, we have this baseline part of their religion that we feed ourselves into. And they do that more organically slowly over time. And this, it was very, I don't want to use the word rushed because that makes it have a bad connotation because I thought it was well done. But it's a lot quicker pace. The pacing is much faster because they're in a seven, eight-month time span instead of years. Mm-hmm. And so you don't have the, the montage that, of them like visiting all of the yeah. naves and, and getting them on board. But I thought they did a good job with it. I really did. It does make Paul's uncontrol of the situation, especially as you get to the jihad portion and which they constantly talk about in the book with the the Mm -hmm. waves coming at me. And there was after I took the Water of Life, I realized there wasn't any way to dodge the waves. Like, no matter what, this was going to happen. And it seems much more reasonable if you have this kid that's only Mm -hmm. been doing this for seven, eight months versus several years losing control of this thing. I think that played into that pretty well.
0: Yeah. I think, honestly, the weakest part of the movie is that I think they made the divide between the, like the young Fremen and the old Fremen, they made it a bit too, it was a bit too one dimensional. Like the way it came across was these are the old fogies and their religion. And then the young people are cynical and don't believe in anything. I think they could have had that be a bit more, a bit less clean cut between like Stilgar and Chani, which is another big change from the books is that, Basically from the beginning of... Because in the the movie they tell Paul is much more vocal about not being the Lisa Al Ghaib to the Fremen than he is in the books. And over time he's like cornered into accepting that position. Like they find the House Atomics and he realizes that he can actually use those to get revenge on the Baron and the Imperium. And Chani is just going along with it, but she becomes like an antagonist to his mission by the end of the book. She's not on board with him taking up the mantle of the Lisa and Al-Gaib. And at the end of the movie, she is, she goes off into the desert on her, presumably on her sandworm, sandworm. And I'm interested to see how they play that in the sequel, because in the book she had at that point, she and Paul have already had a kid who was killed by the Harkonnens and so it'll be interesting to see how they rectify that. I have I've seen some theories that they'll switch Erlin and Chinese positions. Have Erlin be the one who has uh Ganima and Alito the second. And that would be interesting. I don't know how well that would work, mm-hmm. but I'm I'm interested to see how they rectify Where Chani and Paul are at the end of this movie because it ends on a cliffhanger. So, what were what was y'all's thoughts on what they did with Chani in this?
1: Yeah, it was interesting because, like I said, I reread the book like the day I finished it the day before the movie, so I could be right locked in. And so, yeah, when that kind of was happening, and Chani was like resistant to in the film, especially toward the end, because in the book she's fully accepting like that she's she can't marry Paul because he needs to make that marriage of convenience or whatever with the emperor so that he can, so she's aware that he'll never love Ireland but, and I'll be his true wife. They won't call me a wife. They'll call, and I think in the last line of the book is, is something like they'll call, well, we shall be known as concubine. And she's talking about with yeah. Jessica. So yeah, so it'll be, and I think, it. but I think like I said earlier, that's one of the changes that could set up the sequel a little bit more is you have her, like you have something drawing Paul back to kind of his roots as it were, or his, his, not being the least on Agaiib or or the Quazitz Haderach, he's has that human connection that could potentially draw him back from this brink. Because in the as we'll discuss later in in a future recording about the Children of Dune, he's his relationship with Chani like once that ends, it, his he, he's done with well, being the Emperor. So <laughs> see you guys yeah. later <laughs> off to the desert,
2: pretty much. So yeah, no.
1: so yeah, it'll be interesting to see how yeah it's. Because they combine the Children of Dune and Dune Messiah into one six hour, or I guess six ish hour Mm -hmm. miniseries or so. So it'll be interesting to see how they can, if they do that, if they can, how they combine it the next one or how they end it. Because they could diverge quite a bit. So, and that's one of the ways they could. So it'll be interesting to see what they do there.
2: Yeah, I I was not a fan of what they did with Shawnee towards the end of it. I thought it played in too much to the difference, the religious differences. And Mm -hmm. I, I get it. But it was also, like, it was very uncharacteristic of Chani. Like, her personality we get from the book and who she is by the time Paul goes into that final fight. And so, for me, it was a little off-putting. It was like, we've gone too far off the mark with one of the characters. Like, I like, all the characters are just a little bit different than they are from the book, and that's fine. But Mm -hmm. they're all pretty much at core. Yeah, they're they're Leto, they're Paul, they're Gurney, they're... Duncan. But Chani almost seems like a different character, almost. Especially by the end of the movie. And so, that was one of the few things I really... I Actually, that may be the only thing <laughs> that I <laughs> yeah. took a little bit of umbrage at this movie about was her characterization.
0: Yeah, I understand Shawnee really doesn't have a lot to do in the books. And so I understand they wanted to give her more to do in the movie and... I think it worked on some levels. I it, for me, I'm holding my opinion on that on the way they've changed her character. It's how I feel about her character in this movie is going to be informed by what they do with that in the new movies. Like they could it could they could use that as a way to explore Paul's like his inner turmoil because the books and this is something they did a good job with in both these movies was the books have a lot of inner monologue. And I remember the 1984 movie, they just take the inner monologue and do voiceover so much. And it's just weird and it doesn't work dramatically. So I think that Chani, I feel like they, Chani took the place of Paul's inner monologue with himself in this movie. And I think that that can work or it can not work depending on where they go with it. So I wasn't, I didn't like it ending with her and Paul apart because that's just so different from the book. Right?
2: right? Yeah, that yeah. it's just that rubbed me the wrong way.
1: Well, I think too, and I think in the Fremen culture, at least from the books, the it's more of like a gender divided society where like the men are the warriors and the women are like they 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 take care of the homestead yeah. and still are valuable to the society. But I think in the books they're not they're trained warriors, but they're not like the ones out actually fighting whoever they're fighting. And so in this one, they've obviously went with men and women are equal fighters or whatever, at least some of them Mm -hmm. are. So making Chani and Paul that kind of evening them out that way too sets up she's not just going to be the stay-at-home, go back to the siege and raise the baby. She's she wants to be on the front lines fighting with Paul. But also she doesn't she wants to fight for Arrakis and for the freedom of her people, whereas Paul there's that, but also the revenge, and also the setting up the golden path eventually, and the future of humanity is all on the line. Right. So she's in the film; she's just really focused on the freedom of her people more than yeah. And that that ties into the not being very religious thing is she doesn't care about you know the future. She just wants her people to be free. So
0: I almost wonder if part of what Denis Villeneuve is doing is taking character like character arc from Siona in God Emperor of Dune and applying it to Chani because Siona has that arc in that book where she starts out like I think she's like a almost like a double agent of to to kill the God Emperor and she comes to understand why he's doing what he's doing by the end so I could see them kind of lifting some of that plot and applying that to Chani
1: yeah, it's been like I said. I've only read, I think the the aside from the first novel, I think I've only read them all once. So it's been a long time since she I've. Like a, <laughs> I remember vague she things was about an it.
2: Unknowing but. double agent Gola that was raised in a no field, so like yes. it was this wheels within wheels plot between the Harkonnens and the. Ixians and the Talaxu
0: to take down the God Emperor. I'm glad that you've got all this on just locked in your head because I I remember like the gist of God Emperor, but it's been a while since I've read it. So I think yeah, I think I'm saying this right, but I'm not totally sure. Yeah,
1: the... yeah, I remember just yeah, those some of the Dune sequels it, when I was reading them in, in my younger days, I I probably glazed over a lot of that stuff. Like I I could follow the action, but some of the higher philosophical things, I probably and like the deeper intrigues and such I didn't necessarily follow oh, yeah. so
2: so yeah by that point I was studying psychology in college and so like a lot of the Jungian baseline genetic memory concepts I had I don't really necessarily agree with them but <laughs> I at least knew what yeah. they were and I had read some of the theories behind that sort of stuff and so it made sense because a lot of that stuff was very in vogue when Herbert wrote the books
0: yeah he basically took totally blanking on who wrote the hero's journey okay. whoever wrote the <laughs> that guy, yeah. That, exact, you're not talking like about Campbell, Invers- are you? Yes, Joseph. Yeah, Joseph yeah, Campbell. Joseph Campbell. Yeah, yeah. that's the name. That's the name. It's, it's like an inversion of Joseph Campbell's hero's journey, and the hero's journey is based a lot on uh, Carl Jung's writing. So, so the movie opens. I, I like how the movie opens with the very first shot of the movie is embryo in utero, and Paul's talking to her, it's Aaliyah, and It was a strangely pro-life thing to have in a a mainstream blockbuster movie, which I appreciated that. I know that wasn't really the intent, but it is nice that Aaliyah's humanity is recognized throughout the movie when she's still in utero. So that that was nice to see. And we get like this long, very quiet scene of Paul and the Fremen are going to Siege Tabler. And it's during a solar eclipse, which you get like that that red, desaturated look, which is really cool, and just the cinematography in this movie is amazing. So
2: good. Oh my gosh. So good. Every choice they made was spot on. <laughs> so good. Yeah, I, I wouldn't want to live on
1: Arrakis, but I would like to visit and take a couple of pictures, because it looks incredible, but it would not be fun to live yeah, there. Just,
0: <laughs> and this movie obviously uses a lot of CGI, but it Uses practical effects where practical effects should be used, and it doesn't do the sci-fi thing of the late, like the laser rifles in the movie. Like they operate how you'd actually expect a real laser rifle to work. Like it shoots like a beam you can see, but it's mo- mostly you can see it through the refraction from like dust particles. It's not like a, a phaser in Star Trek, and it doesn't make a pew pew sound. It's like a, <laughs> a mechanical <laughs> click. Yeah, <laughs> and you get the when they use the suspensers like there's no glowing lights or like jet packs like it's i just lo- love the way the technology is done and it's understated and realistic in as much as f- floating people can be realistic but it's <laughs> i just <laughs> love the attention to that aesthetic and then we get I like how they show so like in the book it talks about the Fremen water is a very important thing to their culture because they live in the desert and it's treated as this sacred thing and when you die your water is recycled and given back to the siege and to the tribe and When they kill the Harkonnen warriors, they harvest their water, which Stilgar talks about. They're not going to drink it because it's full of chemicals, but it'll be fine to cool the machinery. And
1: Well, were those Harkonnens or were those Sardaukar? I thought those were Sardaukar that they were draining.
2: I think they they were Harkonnens. Harkonnens. I remember that from the books, if I remember right. They talk about they can't use the Harkonnens water.
1: I thought it was the Sardau car because they were like pump because they're the Emperor's slaves and are like pumped full of chemicals and drugs and stuff. So I thought it was
2: the Sardau car that were taken. It's probably true of them too, I'm gonna guess. Yeah. I, but I think you're right. Yeah. I think in the books it does mention the Sardau car having that.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the the water thing was interesting because in the book, the water is because they said that the water that they take from the dead is not drunk by the people like it's just put in these giant cisterns but in the books it's like the water when because when Paul kills Jamis in the book mm-hmm. he gets his water and it's because you're when you lose the you lose water through sweat in combat so he gets the water back and it's belongs to him which is for drinking or whatever and it's water is a currency that yeah. you, and there's a whole thing of like, if you ask a woman to hold your water coins it's like a proposal to marriage thing but it was interesting that they say the water of the dead is just recycled into the or it's just put in these cisterns and they don't really say what the plan is you can glean that it's maybe to potentially terraform arrakis eventually yeah with when they have enough but it's not consumed by the people which is yeah so i thought that was an interesting change because yeah in the books they're like you all water is kept and recycled by the People and like your when you die, your water goes to your family. Right. Assuming it was you, didn't die in single combat in
0: a like a duel or whatever. Right. So. And just the the visceral way, like when they're harvesting the water from the soldiers, it's pretty nasty. But it was I like how they did that. You even see Chani; she it's like they have these siphon machines that they stick into them and they start draining the water out. And Chani does that to a guy who's still alive, which eesh. yeah,
2: it reminds me of a Tank Girl. If you ever saw that movie. They have oh, yeah. similar extraction units. They just stab into a guy, <laughs> shoot the water out of him. Yeah, that's that's rough.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Because they don't, I think in the book, they don't really explain
1: how they do it. I think it's hinted that it's almost like a coffin type of thing. Like you put the body in it and it like dehydrates the body and collects the moisture into vats or whatever. But so it was interesting seeing it like drained out like yeah, that. They
2: do that to one of the guys in Children of Dune. That's and yeah. They put him yeah. in that coffin while he's alive.
0: <laughs> like, uh, yeah, that's, that's right. it's like Godfather yes, Part Two yes, scene, in the <laughs>
2: Night of Long Knives,
0: Arya version. <laughs> yeah, we do see they do that with Jamis. They put him in. It, it all it looks like a vacuum sealer, basically, it's like a bag. Yeah, <laughs> they siphon it out that way. I wish they had done the I was a friend of Jamis scene in the movies because that's such an amazing scene yeah. in the books, and it really they hinted a lot at that in. Both part one and part two by having Jamis be in Paul's vision, and that kind of telegraphs the all the different ways that time could go. And I feel like that was the Jamis was his friend in the desert who was going to teach yeah. him the way of the desert. But I wish they would have actually had that scene because it was so amazing.
1: Yeah, because it's because when they're doing like everyone's saying they're that they were a friend of Jamis because of this or that. Paul cries and they're like, he's shedding tears for the dead and it's a huge, or, sh- or shedding water for the dead. And it's a, it's like a pretty big deal that you don't cry because your, any moisture is crucial in the desert. So they're like, they see that as a big sign that he's potentially someone special. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and overall it was just the change of, that change I was not the biggest fan of because in the book he's, he kills Jamis, and he's accepted as part of the tribe basically. But in this, it's he's still not really part of the tribe after that. He's and it and even toward it takes a long time for him to become accepted, whereas it's more instant in the book and
0: Yeah, he doesn't get accepted in the movie really. Stillgar pretty much accepts him from the from the first. But he doesn't get accepted by the tribe in general until they attack the sandcrawler. And yeah, yeah. that's they do that scene where he becomes a fit and Gets accepted into the tribe, so they combine that. So, and again, these are things where I am such a big fan of the book that I, I will see any small change and like not like it. But I didn't get that vibe from the movie because it works so well in the movie, and it's one of those things where you can't you you have two two and a half or three hours to translate an entire novel, or I guess half a novel, but a lot of material still. And I think that this is similar to the changes that Peter Jackson had to make with Lord of the Rings where my biggest problem with those movies is what he did to Faramir and so I feel like I feel like Chani <laughs> might be the Chani might be the Faramir equivalent of bad character changes.
2: <laughs> well yeah, and I think where a lot of people when they change stuff from books in movies they don't take into account okay, we still have to get to this end point, right? And yeah. if I've got to get to this end point and I make these changes here, does it still make sense to get there? And the way they changed things never caused it to make no sense when they got to the end, right? Everything made sense. Like even Shawnee leaving made sense within the context of what the changes they had made, which is why I don't like it. But it's still, it's not like I'm going to walk away from the movie because of it. I really, I actually, the way Paul's accepted into the tribe better in the movie than I did in the book, because for me, it made way more sense. Just from, and if you have a tradition set up in that kind of a, a culture, that okay, well, this guy kills this guy in single combat, now we're going to accept him. But, it, it, like, from uh is he really one of us standpoint, it didn't make a whole lot of sense until after he had gone out and did and fought with them and, and for them and proved, okay, he's not just some outsider who's trying to restake his claim or try to become our duke or whatever again. He's yeah. one of us, and he's proven himself. So I really enjoyed... I, I, that was a change I liked. And uh, to go back a little bit, the, all the Aria stuff was amazing. Just it, like you said before, the treating of her as a human being right from the get-go. The mm-hmm. conversations between her and Jessica were fantastic. Like, her being a person. Like, she's a person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she's a human being from the get-go. It was so refreshing to see... Like a, a movie not shy away from the material from the book, which could be considered controversial today, and just nope, this is how it is and this is how it was. And that was great to see. I really loved it.
0: Yeah, definitely. So maybe it'll get some people thinking. Yeah, and,
2: and along with the
1: Paul's stuff is Jessica in the movie is much more aggressive in saying, I have to we have to participate in this try to like incorporate this Fremen legend to save us, where in the book I feel like it, it, they go along with it because it's there. But in the this, she's really pushing it, and like they're, she's like taking because it. again, it's over a longer period of time. But in, it's not right away that she takes the water of life. In the book, it's after at least a couple months that she does. I, it, it's at least not right away. But this was like really pretty close because their fremen's Reverend Mother Syedina was about to die, and so they're like, okay, this is our our best option. So we need this to. Because in the Furman, use the water of life is it's part of their culture, and I'm glad they didn't do the spice orgy thing. Because that's <laughs> that would probably be that would be weird, and yeah. But I'm glad they didn't do
0: that. But yeah, it's. I was going to say it would have also been just like a rehash of that scene in The Matrix when they first get designed. Yeah, I was just thinking of that. The Matrix, <laughs> the grave they have. Yeah. So.
1: If you want to see that scene, it's in. They do it in the 2000s, but it's like a very tame TV version of it. But. Yeah. But yeah, they, Jessica's a lot more aggressive in the, in this, in this story or in the films than she was. I feel like in the books, cause even later she becomes more, she becomes like a damper on Paul in, in the later books where she's like not letting the Fremen come to her planet. Cause she doesn't want, she doesn't want them to massacre the entire place <laughs> like they do
0: everywhere yeah. else. I think they had, there was a lot of. Well, because of the time compression, there's also a lot of character compression, and you have all these different characters you're juggling, and you got to make cuts somewhere. And I think Jessica was one of the places where things were cut a lot because she's not really in the movie that much. Yeah,
2: yeah. Like, so like her sort of pushing things was necessary for the pace that they had decided to put the movie at. She has to push the Fremen into this point of being at a place where they could accept Paul by the time Mm -hmm. Paul was ready. And at the same time, she's not, she's prepping the way for Paul to take up the mantle of the Kwisatz Haderash. But also, she's not, it doesn't seem like she was pushing him very much, which I can't remember if that was true in the books or not. I remember...
1: I don't think it was as aggressive. I think she was, yeah, it was like they were just, it was more of Paul's getting caught up in the religion and going along with him because he was also in the book like courting Chani and trying to eventually marry her and whatnot. So um, as along with like re- his kind of vengeful or his crusade for justice against the Harkonnens mm-hmm. and the Empire,
0: I like how we get this big start with Paul. We see where he is with the fremen, and then we get this big section of the middle of the movie where you get a uh, get to see the the Harkonnens and we're introduced to Fade Rotha and that whole. That whole section was terrifying and disgusting, and also amazing.
2: Like so well, done. The,
1: <laughs> yeah, the aesthetic yeah, the, of the the black planet, yeah, the, you know, the black sun like, planet. Which they they're like they filmed, blob fireworks. Yeah, and, <laughs> they filmed it in
0: infrared, which was a really cool choice. And I like, and that was all pr- pretty much straight from the book. We get Fade introduced in his his big. It's like his his coming out to the people coming, coming of age thing. He does yeah. the, the combat in the arena and he kills the last Atreides warriors. The big differences from the book is that in the book, well, they have this in the movie where they're drugged, but then the one slave, uh, or the one like Atreides slave is not drugged and they completely cut out Fade's little, it's like his poison injector that he's got on his belt that he can use, which I was fine with him cutting that out. It works in the book, but I think I like how they did that in the movie. And Austin Butler just did a fantastic job in that role. He, oh my gosh. he even mimicked the Barons, like his cadence, and he was just creepy. And I like how H.R. Geiger-esque everything yeah. was, which is interesting because he, when Alejandro Jodorowsky was going to do the crazy, insane 10-hour version of Dune that had Mick Jagger and uh, Salvador Dali in it from... The 70s, H.R. Geiger did a lot of concept art for it, and you can see a lot of the inspiration taken uh, for the Harkonnen aesthetic that he had going, and I just absolutely loved it.
1: Yeah, I'm glad they went with a little bit different direction in from the 2000s miniseries, because in that one, the Baron is much more, he's much more of a polite kind of, he'll, he's, he, and in your face, he's polite to you, but behind your back, he's scheming against you. Whereas this, it's like the Barons, he's evil, anyone who's dealing with him knows he's evil, and it's just reflected in their planet. And it was really creepy seeing Austin Butler, or seeing, rather, Fade Rotha go to Arrakis, where he's not in black and white. Because it's like, you see him in black and white first, and then when he gets to Arrakis, he opens his mouth and his gums are like stark (laughs) red almost. And you're like, it's just like a weird, kind of a very, very shocking kind of a thing. And all
2: intentional, of course, but... Everything about that was amazing. They just, yeah, the, the Geiger's, you could say the minute you see the Harkonnen Palace and the city and everything, you're like, Oh, <laughs> they, yeah. they really tried on this one. And then you realize, okay, it's shot in infrared. Everything's black and white when it's outside. But in the, when they're inside under artificial light, you can see their skin color and it's just weird switch. And they're all. Every conversation that occurs on GD Prime is in this kind of almost strange, like I would almost say, like quasi mystical, but like the evil kind of mystical sort of Mm -hmm. exchange. It's the tonality of the actors. They did such a good job of just suffusing everything about they did as being somewhat strange or creepy or alien or just not human right yeah like some of the actions fade rotha takes like with the slaves and his cadre of cannibalistic girls (laughs) which is okay (laughs) that's very
0: when he's inspecting like when he's introduced like he's getting presented his weapons to for the fight and he picks up the knife and he balances it, and then to test it he just stabs the attendant and it's such a casual thing like It was just so creepy. And then the, I guess they were like the handlers who were there to make sure he didn't actually get hurt. They have these, it's all black skin tight suit with these huge like weird horns. Like it looked like something out of a Hieronymus Bosch painting and it was just terrifying. (laughs) Yeah.
2: And it was, it's so weird seeing him play Fade Ratha because I've been watching Masters of the Air and he plays one of the main characters in that and he's this really (laughs) lovable guy. And (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> seeing him as fan and you did such what a happen- good job.
0: Yeah. What happened to Elvis? Yeah. <laughs> that's <laughs>
2: right. Yeah. Yeah, there
1: was there was a great meme of it was Timothy Chalamet dressed as Wonka and Austin Butler as Elvis in like the final duel. <laughs> so it was like Wonka versus <laughs> Elvis.
0: That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, and I, I think that like you mentioned how they changed the Harkin aesthetic from the original to or the 2000s and I think that's good because I like the way the Harkonnens are done in the book but it would be very hard to take the way the Bergen is characterized in the book and have not have it come across as like he, he in the book he's almost like effeminate and frilly and just he's like a symbol just passions run crazy Decadence. in excess and it would be very hard to do that in the movie and not have it just be ridiculous which is how it is in the 84 one.
1: Yeah. Well, they set the reason that he's got is because in the prelude to do novels, which are like the prequels with where Duke Leto is like the main, he's the protagonist. The, you find out the Baron was, he was basically infected with a par, with a virus by a, the Bene Gesserit. Cause they were, he basically was in the, they sent the Bene Gesserit to conceive an, a, a child, Jessica with him, but he, treated them badly shall we say and so as a because the bene geser can control their body chemistry and so the bene geser basically gave him a virus that kind of made him all grotesque and caused so he because he was very much like proud of his appearance and stuff and so i think and so as a response to that so that people didn't to rather than saying what happened to him he was like throwing banquets and just these huge like almost hunger game style like Capital parties to throw off the scent of what actually happened. So that's why he's, at least according to the, the prequels that were written posthumously, is why he's so grotesque and stuff. So, and you really get that sense more in this than the 2000s, because in that one, it's just like a bigger guy that's not really, it doesn't have a lot of misshapen tumor type things like, like all over him. So, yeah.
0: And we get a uh, lady Finring in that scene. She's got a very cut short part, but she works well for the story. And I don't remember in the book, Jeff. You might remember this because you just finished the book. But does does Fade go through the Gomjabar in the book? Because they do that in the movie, and I, I like how they I like that they had that contrast with Paul.
1: Yeah, I don't think they do. I think it's because the, the Margot Fenring is sent to basically seduce him and conceive a child, and or conceive a child because she's part of the Bene Gesserit and because they're you know they're all about preserving the, these bloodlines to. Get to this Quasits Haderach because originally he was Fade would have been the one who married the daughter that Jessica and Leto had mm-hmm. to create the Quasits Haderach. So, yeah, I think so. I think in the book, they just send her to like conceive a child so that they can preserve that bloodline because they know the Baron's not gonna, he doesn't have any like, I guess, legitimate children other than and Jessica's his unknown mm-hmm. child, but so they they can only go for his and. I don't think they wanted to continue Robin's <laughs> bloodline after his whole thing. Yeah. So. Yeah, and that was speaking of him. That was really cool how he Fade Rotha just handled the beast because I think in the book they don't really it's not really said what happens. Like the Baron's just we're going to make the beast really evil and so the people hate him, and then we're going to bring in this savior Fade Rotha to save Arrakis, mm-hmm. quote unquote, so the people love him. There's not really he doesn't really come in and curb stomp his brother like he did to take control of Arrakis
0: yeah I like Dave Batista's acting and this is very good he plays unhinged in a way that it wasn't it's a, it would be a very easy thing to have it not work out and just be comedic but he does it in a way where you can see that this guy is like has no control over his emotions because you have that part where I think these are supposed to be the mintots, but the guy's telling him that they can't find like all the Fremen and what's going on and he just like smashes the guy's face into the console and kills him and just so much anger that he cannot control
2: yeah i also like they they showcased him both in that and then as a coward as well and yeah and i think they did a really good job with that as this kind of sneaky coward mm-hmm. but this guy that sort of tries to get out of the way whenever things seem to be going wrong um yeah such a good job with the
0: beast and we have yeah, the Emperor and Irulan. and we got I like the, like how they did that. What did you all think of him as the Emperor?
1: Yeah, it was so it was hard to separate like the memes of Christopher Walken and like the <laughs> SNL stuff and all that from that their performance. Yeah. And I think there was a little bit of that Walken as Walkenesque esque stuff going on, but I think it was I think it fit the part pretty well, actually. And yeah, you could they didn't really go too much into him and he was how there was hinted that he was worried about getting supplanted by Leto and or by Leto's popularity. But yeah, and his relationship with Erlon was great. Cause she's barely in the book. She's you get to know her through cause she's recording the history right. of, of Paul's empire. And so you get to know her through like sayings and stuff. And she becomes like more of a character in the in the later books because she takes over he she's like raising his children. But yeah, it was, I thought they did a pretty good job with it because it, yeah, it it was just interesting to see Christopher Walken in that role <laughs> compared so it's to
0: a, Yeah, everything has got else. a fever, and the only uh, <laughs> prescription is more spice lunch. Sp- more spice, no. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think I posted a, a meme in the Discord like that of, fellas, I'm going to need more
0: spice. <laughs> yeah, I thought he was great. I think Florence Pugh was excellent casting for Ireland. She plays the character in a very serious, mannered way, where because that's how Erlen is. She's got to work behind the scenes and a lot of conniving and scheming. And Erlen, you end up feeling really bad for her in the books. So I'm excited to see where they go with her. I also do think it's funny that because Timothy Chalamet plays Laurie in the Greta Gerwig Little woman and Florence Pugh plays Amy, and they get married in that. And so you've totally. got them getting matched up again in this in very different circumstances. So yeah, we get a uh, we get Paul, he finally takes on the the mantle of the Lisa al-Ghaib in the Quetzalcoatl. We get to see Gurney again, which is great. You got the you young pup scene, which is straight out of the book. Something I really like about the climax of this movie is that it didn't didn't do what so many movies do nowadays, which is here's forty five minutes of an over the top CGI action fest. You get the shield wall getting destroyed with the atomics. You get this them coming in on the sandworm, fighting the Sardaukar to confront the Emperor, and it's fantastic and epic. And I think it was maybe five minutes long, and that's perfect. Like the whole climax, like it's more focused on the character interactions and Paul confronting the Emperor, and it's not just mindless action for like 20% of the movie. So that was perfect. It, it had artistic restraint and there was no shaky cam. I loved it. What did y'all, what did yeah. y'all think of the way that the final battle for Eric Keen went?
1: Yeah, I like the big action scenes. Like I'm a big Tolkien fan, obviously, and we've been doing the Peter Jackson movies. So I'm, I love the big battles. But yeah, I think in the, it worked in this movie, and especially you get that microcosm of the combat with... Gurney Halleck getting to take on the beast because in the original book, it, it wasn't Gurney who kills him. It was, it might have just been like a random Fermin or something or a that gets him. Um, but I did like that they, you know, he got that kind of, I don't condone revenge, but it was satisfying because <laughs> of what the beast did. So.
0: Revenge is one of those interesting concepts where in real life it's terrible, but oftentimes in fiction it's very satisfying because it, like, you need that for those kinds of. Like, for the character arc and for the resolution of the tension in the story, like, having the good guy kill the bad guy is very satisfying. But obviously, in real life, you want to do everything you can to avoid those kinds of situations. Yeah.
2: Well, I... And and typically, in, in good fiction, when that happens, it's almost always framed as a just action it's in the service of justice right which is if you want to look at like the if you would have justice and vengeance on the same side on a coin vengeance is like the dark side of that coin right and you can take justice into vengeance then that's always the if you have a justice system that's always where you're trying to draw a line between okay are we just taking vengeance on this criminal or are we actually doing justice for what they did um but yeah, especially when good films and good media frame it correctly, so it doesn't feel like vengeance, except when they want it yeah. to. And sometimes they take one of those vengeful actions, and you're like, yeah, that was dirty. Like, like <laughs> they shouldn't have done that. And but that's what they were going for. But in this case, it felt like justice, because...
0: It is interesting that you talk about the difference between justice and vengeance, because Gurney killing the beast was definitely, I would say, justice, but... the the change they made where Ali is not the one who kills the Baron but Paul is the way they do that, that was very much just straight up vengeance because at this point the Baron is just flat out on the floor he's had his suspensors cut away from him and he's revealed this pathetic disgusting character that he is and Paul just comes up and in a reference to the Gamjabari he stabs him right in the neck and tells him that you die like an animal grandfather because at this point Paul's had that revelation that's his grandfather and that was just disturbing. And obviously the Baron is horrible and it's hard to feel too bad for him. But the fact that Paul would kill some, like a defenseless person just lying on the ground like that, that was definitely where you see his thirst for vengeance really come through. Yeah.
2: And yeah, it's funny cause you don't like when Arya does it, you don't have that necessarily moral cor- conundrum because you're so shocked by the fact that you in the book it's a two year old killing somebody, or in the other shows it's like
1: a four year old, well, and he like grabs her around and is like threatening to kill her with a knife or something. Yeah. So and she like scratches him with the bar. So you could claim self defense there for that, but I think she probably could have gotten out of it if she really wanted to, <laughs> but she didn't want to.
0: <laughs> so yeah, and then I think the last shot we get of the Baron is his body left out in the desert with ants crawling on it, which. But as we know if we've read the books, I assume we'll get uh more Stellan Skarsgard in the role. Yeah. Yep. yeah, <laughs> and we get the final
1: Or maybe his son or if they do if they do what they do in some
2: of yeah. the later
0: books. It'll be weird. <laughs> to those listening, if you've not read the later books, they get weird. Things are
2: gonna get weird, yo. If you didn't think they were weird yes. yet. <laughs> yeah.
1: Almost history of the world. Jews are yeah. in space. Well yeah, that's <laughs> yes. to the real later books. And
0: you're like <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, but yeah, we get the final confrontation between Emperor choosing he chooses Fade as his like his, his first for his the duel between Fade and Paul, and we get their fight, and that that was very well done. It was well choreographed. Like all the action and combat in these movies is fantastic, It's just very well done. It was interesting that we because we don't have the like the poison like barb that Fade uses in the book, we don't get any of that, but we get. Fact that he he does get a hit in on Paul and he stabs him and it's looking pretty dire for Paul for a minute. But we get a reference back to when he's first doing combat training with Gurney in, in the in the first part where Fade leaves his like he leaves his lower half unguarded and Paul's able to get in the, the killing stroke with that. And then we get him announcing. This is also another change from the book. But the Lance Rad, who's now in orbit over Arrakis, they do not accept his ascension. Whereas in the book, they do. And so the final moments... He's threatening to...
1: Yeah, because they need the spice. Yeah. And because the Spacing Guild is involved too, because they need the spice to do the, their folding space. Yeah.
0: So. I was hoping we'd see a guild navigator yeah. in this. We I didn't. But I do understand. I feel like coming into this as a big fan of the book, it's I get a lot of the world building around it, but I can understand removing all that stuff and saving it until we get in like with Edric in the later stories because if you throw too much at someone who's not read the books, they there's going to be like, why is there a weird floating worm man and <laughs> what, what is going on? Like, I understand why they streamlined it and focused just on Paul and the Fremen and his battle against the Harkonnens. So would have liked to see it, but I get why they didn't. So yeah. What did y'all, what did y'all think of that final fight?
1: Yeah, it was cool. Yeah, seeing yeah, it's because it's the culmination of it's like the final battle, the final duel. So that was good. I was, and I think all, that's a change as far as the Landsraad not accepting him. That's going to make for a better sequel because if because in the book, it's he just goes on, he takes over, and his fremen just go on this jihad across the known galaxy, and sixty one billion people die. So having it at least be more of a people aren't accepting him, so he's letting his army loose is a little bit. I think I feel like it's at least a little bit better, but also it's still not great because a lot of people are gonna die from it. So so it'll be interesting to see how they pick that up in the sequels. Yeah. I
2: I think it makes a lot more sense of the jihad, to be honest. Like I get it in the books, like it's something that happens and it's sure, but this really makes sense of it. I'm like, okay, don't accept me. Here we go. <laughs> yeah. I loved what you're saying about the how they balanced the major action in the movie. So the Fight of Arakeen, and then the fight between Paul and Fade, and what you have is a repeat from the first, where you have from the first movie where you have the the destruction of House Atreides and that battle action that occurs, which moves pretty fast. Right, you're not sitting mm-hmm. at twenty to thirty minutes of real action; it's five to ten minutes, and then Paul's eventual duel that he has at the end of the film. And to save his life. And it's the same mm-hmm. sort of thing going on here. It's, okay, giant battle. I've lost everything. And now I'm fighting to save my me and my mother's w- life. And then juxtaposed against this, okay, battle to retake everything and get revenge. Mm-hmm. And a battle to that is complete life and death, right? If I don't win this... I don't know what happens. And in the books, he doesn't. This is one of those node points in his prescience where he doesn't see, he doesn't know if he actually wins this fight or not. Like, he knows what happens if he does win, but he doesn't actually see the fight, so he doesn't know what Fade's gonna do. Like, mm-hmm. it's not like some of the other battles he's a part of, especially after this point, where he's just, like, oh, yeah, this guy's gonna throw a dagger at me here, and I just needed to look left, and then <laughs> it's a non scripted thing. And I thought they did a great job with the fight. They did it so well that there was a point where I was like, is Paul going to lose? And I'm like, how? No, he's not going to (laughs) lose. But they did it good enough that the thought went through
0: my head. Yeah. And there wasn't any, it was all believable. And so, yeah, no, it was fantastic. Did you have any other, any final thoughts before we wrap this up? No,
1: other than, yeah, just absolutely incredible movie. And I'm hoping to go see it again next week. So, because I saw the first, I saw it in IMAX the first time, like I was saying before we started, and I won't see it in IMAX again. But I'm, I definitely want to see it at least once more, and probably a million more times at home whenever it comes <laughs> <Man>. out. <laughs>
2: yeah. Can't wait to watch them like back to back for six hours.
1: Yeah, that's how I watched the this one. I like, I took the day off I, around lunchtime. I started the first movie, and then like I had an about an hour to in between that and the show time for my movie. So uh, that's how what I did the first day. But it'll be even better to watch them like.
2: Right, One right after the other.
0: Nice. Yeah, don't even pause. Just cut them together.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like we mentioned, they did such a good job with casting across the board. Everybody was cast, mm-hmm. amazingly. And it was phenomenal to finally see somebody do the second half of this book well. Because yeah. it is... Like the first half of the book is honestly it's a pretty straightforward story. <laughs> the yeah. second half gets weird. And so seeing somebody being able to pull it off was so awesome. Just so good. But yeah, that's my
0: final thought. Definitely. It's it's nice to see someone who gets the story, gets that Paul is a tragic figure. It's like a Shakespeare. It's like Shakespeare. I kind of feel like Dune and Dune Messiah. It's not Star Wars. That's awesome. Yeah. Before we go, we'd like to take a moment uh, to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create secrets of movies and TV shows, including SR, Joseph G., Francisco M., JP, and Thomas B. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give. Make it possible for us to continue the secrets of movies and TVs and all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. And be sure to follow the Secrets of Movie and TV Shows in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And you can check it out on the StarQuest YouTube channel. And you can hit the bell there to get notifications, and that's at youtube.com slash QPN. If you want to join us on our Discord, we have a Secrets of Movies and TV channel there. We also have the general spoilers there, and I think that's where all, all the Dune, Dune talk is going on. So we definitely want to hear what y'all think of Think of Dune Part 2. Can let us know by commenting on the show, posting at sqpn.com slash secrets, or on the StarQuest Facebook page. You can send us an email at secrets at sqpn.com. Yeah, and like I said, visit the Discord community. That's at sqpn.com slash Discord. Until next time, Patrick, thank you for joining me and sharing the Secrets of Dune Part 2. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me on. Awesome, and Jeff, thank you as well. Thanks, Jack. Once again, I'm Jack Barrazzini. Thank you for listening to the Secrets of Movies and TV Shows on StarQuest. Here's another show on the StarQuest Network you're sure to enjoy. PlayStation Portable.
2: Find it wherever
0: fine podcasts are found, or at StarQuest.fm/psp. We'd like to thank Patrick McCaffrey of Moonshadow Studios for editing this episode. To have your audio edited professionally and with care, check out more of Patrick's work at moonshadowstudios.biz. That's moonshadowstudios.biz.